This podcast is presented by SoCalREN, the Southern California Regional Energy Network. We're a collection of local governments that come together to promote energy efficiency programs for residents, businesses, and public agencies. Welcome to Re-Energizing Communities, your connection to conversations about energy efficiency that can help you influence change at home, at work, and in your community. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, our host, Julie Castro, welcomes Cameron Hunt, a community organizer for LANE, the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy. Through its Repower LA campaign, LANE is working to bring equitable environmental programs and career path jobs to the nation's largest municipally owned utility, the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, or the DWP. Let's listen in to learn more. Lane has a long history and for over 25 years, it's been recognized nationally as an advocacy organization building a community centric economy. Can you give us some background on how Lane has evolved over the last few decades? The vision has been to build a new economy that's rooted in good jobs, thriving communities and a healthy environment, really working in Los Angeles and cities across the county for community oriented and grassroots organizing policies definitely are a set of people who believe in the need for change. This was founded over 25 years ago out of the recognition from a lot of the founders who were actually leaders in the labor movement in the 90s and other important movements for justice. There's a need to bridge the needs of community and labor for collective power, especially to win for working families. Lane was built on that philosophy that we're weaker divided, we're stronger when we work together. Lane has definitely evolved in that time since the 90s as the movement has evolved as well. When Lane was founded, the intersectional view hadn't been developed yet. Labor and community were definitely taken into account, but less of an emphasis on racial and gender justice in particular. Over the last 10 years, Lane has really seen the need to apply those lenses into the work that we do. Still making progress, but we'll all admit that there's a lot of progress still to be made, but we definitely center those values of racial justice, gender justice, you know, an end to all the forms of oppression that people face and discrimination as well. We recognize that most workers in LA are low wage workers from oppressed communities who are also part of what we call frontline communities. Those who face the brunt of climate catastrophe, of pollution, all of these things that make life really dangerous and hazardous. We want to make sure that communities are at the front and center of the fight for economic justice. We, with time, have started to involve more environmental work into uh, what we do. Uh, it's acknowledged that 20 years ago, climate justice was more of this like debate, but definitely with time, we started to see the necessity of working on this front. 12 years ago, we started to work with more environmental groups to build the ports campaign, fought pollution and communities of color around the ports. That was our first truly environmental campaign. We moved into Don't Waste LA, which is now known as Recicla, which aimed to overhaul how the city of LA worked with waste. More recently, the center of our environmental work has been through Repower LA. Can you give us an overview of the Repower LA program? Repower LA is a coalition of environmental, labor, and community-based organizations that are dedicated to an energy-efficient future for our city's frontline communities 
We work with organizations like Communities for a Better Environment, Pacoima Beautiful, National Resources Defense Council. So many different organizations that are putting their energy together to help reduce the dependence on fossil fuels, create good paying, clean energy jobs in many different forms, and also saving on the rising cost of energy, especially the hardest hit working class communities of color. Throughout the pandemic, we've continuously fought for utility debt erasure. The first campaign that we were working on was erase utility debt, which I think is just a beautiful concept of what a future could look like. At first, we were thinking, do we call it forgiveness? Do we call it erase utility debt? But ultimately, we decided this debt is caused by the inequities in our society. There's no forgiveness required. We don't believe that there's some wrong that has been done by the ratepayer who can't pay their bills and falls behind. But we've been pushing for different things that can help stabilize the bills, help deal with spikes that happen during the most extreme seasons uh, or extreme months. And many at the time, of course, were required to stay at home without utility debt relief during the heat of the pandemic and doing like school from home, doing work from home, all of these things at the same time for some people really led to high energy costs. So we did our best. And by the end of 2020, the combined efforts of the Repower LA Coalition helped to win a $500 utility grant assistance check for 66,000 low-income families. So that was a start, $500 check. That can help pay for some things, but the unfortunate way that the economy is set up is that many people still had to choose between their bills or food or other essentials or medical care. So we knew that more had to be done. Part of our mission with DWP, which is Department of Water and Power, it's actually a public utility. Therefore, you know, we believe that the masses of ratepayers have a right to decision-making power, and advocating for these things. That's why we push for public comments at LADWP and as much communication and transparency as we can get. There were other things that Repower has worked on across its long history, but there was a big pivot definitely once the pandemic started and communities were really hurting. So we decided to focus our energy there. Have you seen cost affect residents' comfort or even pose risks to their health because they're afraid to heat or cool their home to a certain level? We interviewed a community resident out in Wilmington who brought up the fact that one day she was giving her kid a bath and next thing she knew, the lights were all out. And the, the fear and the anxiety that that really induces in a parent when there's so many things that you have to take care of, pay taxes and all these other things. And then you have this extra special tax to make sure that there's still light and water, which is really ridiculous. The more it's said out loud, we definitely believe in utilities as rights, things that should be guaranteed as rights. And that's truly the only way to, to end that, to end that constant suspense that things could go wrong and you could lose everything. When it comes to Repower LA's work, on one hand, we're fighting for these kinds of ratepayer benefiting things, but we're also fighting for new and improved cleaner infrastructure too, making sure that we're investing into good jobs for these communities, environmental resistance in the planet. One of the things we're working on is actually decarbonizing buildings, which is that related to that whole energy usage issue. And decarbonizing, for those who may be wondering, is essentially helping to electrify things. So it may mean removing gas hookups from buildings or making sure that new buildings that are built are built with 
zero carbon. Part of the reasoning for that is that buildings actually emit 40% of the emissions in the city, which is huge. It brought up some unforeseen challenges and other things that we've been fighting to correct. But it's all a part of making sure that frontline communities don't have to deal with the extra pollution and suffering that comes along with it. What what types of challenges are you having with modifying those buildings to be electric only? There's a lot of challenges that come along with it. Well, low-income tenants would be the most vulnerable to displacement when this happens. Landlord wants to do a retrofit on the building. If it takes months to get it done, where are those people going to live? Will they be in decent housing? Will they have the chance to return? How long will it take? How do you make sure that they're not losing any quality of life in that move. These are all very serious questions that we are building into the policy making. We work with the city council or when we work with the Climate Emergency Mobilization Office. We're making sure that all of this is included and discussed. We also recognize that when it comes to the workforce that would do these retrofits, we want high road jobs to be involved, not ones that do their best to lower the wages and pay people the minimum, not give good benefits or protections at the workplace. But we really want them to be good paying, what we call high road jobs. We definitely want to, with any policy that we put forward, not just take the easiest first route, which is like, okay, we'll decarbonize everything right now as quickly as possible. Because if that means that frontline communities and workers are going to be left behind, then a lot can be lost. Families can be devastated. That's why we are invested in solutions that work for community, low-income tenants, and workers alike with high standards that work for these groups. And some of the measures or technologies or equipment that comes hand-in-hand with decarbonizing, such as placing a gas water heater with an electric water heater, can be pretty capital-intensive. So what do you think some of the solutions to help the entire Los Angeles community and especially low-income residents be able to meet that gap with when you're looking at a big upfront cost? We really believe that any funds that are used to go toward those who are in most need, similar to what we say about erasing utility debt, it should start with the people who are the furthest behind and then moving forward, helping relieve other people's debt. In the same way, there's no reason that developers or landlords who can afford retrofits shouldn't receive the same type of financial support as people who are really struggling. The other thing that we want to make sure is that the costs are not put onto the tenants in the form of increases in what they're paying and these kinds of things. So we're pushing for like a lot of policies that go hand in hand with making that relationship and making tenants' lives more comfortable. At the same time, we've worked with our partners, SAGE, Strategic Alliance for a Just Economy, to really push for policies that help tenants and make sure that the costs don't end up there. But we absolutely believe that the the funds need to be used in the most strategic way possible, even if some of the funds go toward supporting the tenants who are moved out. But we recognize that because of the way the economy is set up, there's definitely high costs and Definitely a lot of private companies who are looking to profit off of the work that's being done. So definitely a struggle, but it's something that's in the works. And we are thankful to be able to work with within government and community partners as well to make this policy actually happen. Currently, it's still moving through the city council and 
there's actually two policies, one that's more focused on existing buildings and making sure that there's a deep process of community and stakeholder engagement before uh, the policies put forward. And then there's another one focused on new buildings and making sure that after a certain point, these buildings are built in a way that aligns with the energy equity goals. How would our listeners learn more about these policies and how can they communicate their interests to their city council members? One place that's good to start is reaching out to me. If you want to directly talk more about these policies, I can definitely be reached at K-H-U-R-T at lane.org. And that's L-A-A-N-E. So two A's in lane. You don't have to be with an organization, but you can definitely make your voice heard in a space like that because it's going to basically go through different committees, go to the full council. And we want to make sure that at every step of the way, our policymakers are aware that there's real community input about this and that people really care about it. I know that a lot of this can be followed also by looking at the city council's website to find when these things are going to happen and when these committee meetings are going to happen. Sometimes hard to navigate that website, but I'm very happy to help. Let's talk about another Repower LA goal, the Utility Pre-Craft Trainee Program, or UPCT. Can you tell us more about the program and your partnership with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or IBEW? It existed for close to a decade, and it was created because of two big problems that were happening, which were there was a huge retiring workforce at LEDWP and across the city. And there was also a need for a skilled workforce, particularly in craft positions. So this goal was something that Repower fought for, creating a pathway in partnership with IBEW Local 18 toward good union jobs at the department, particularly for people who wouldn't have those opportunities. This is a pre-apprenticeship program. You are able to earn while you learn, which is different from many programs. You don't have to come in with a lot of knowledge of even what you want to do exactly or how these complicated systems work. What is needed is to be 18 plus, to live in LA County, and to have a driver's license. Through the program, you learn skills that prepare you for civil service positions. There's many fields of work from energy efficiency and weatherization programs to water heater maintenance, uh, meter reading, clerical jobs. They're high paying, good union jobs with sometimes an average of 37 to $41 per hour. It helps deal with Another barrier to getting into this field, which is civil service exams, because those exams aren't offered as widely as we'd like them to be. And a lot of people don't have the necessary fundamental skills to pass these. So the union helps supplement these people with English or math training or whatever's needed to pass it. There have actually been 17 classes since the start of the program. And people in these classes are being paid a living wage and benefits while they're doing the training. So through this program, hundreds of people mostly black and brown, uh, increasingly more women, and people who don't come from college backgrounds, people who sometimes have criminal records but need to sustain their families, people who wouldn't normally have access to these jobs are now getting the ability to become electricians or clerical workers or gain other career paths. We definitely have acknowledged some of the issues or challenges with running the program. There is quite a wait time. There's more information that could be shared, but Definitely encourage people who are looking for that kind of opportunity, who want a stable career, to look into it, even if there's a wait time. The benefits are quite numerous once it's completed. 
how do you build trust and awareness in the community for the utility pre-craft trainee program? Trust is a key part of what we talk about. And there were people who felt like they had waited a very long time and not heard back. There's a process that's built into it where you have to sign the books, as it's called, and do that in a recurring kind of way. So sometimes people are knocked out if they don't follow it to the T. The fact that the union was willing to go to the community and talk more about the program helps build foundations of that trust, which is definitely essential. People have been promised, you know, good opportunities or there's so many false promises that are often made that I think it it gives a natural level of skepticism for communities who are given lectures or opportunities about these kinds of things. So it is the role of whoever's doing that organizing or whoever's spreading the message about it to prove that this is a different type of thing, that there's a reason for trust and to really create a sustained relationship between the community and whatever kind of program it is. So, you know, we've addressed several, but I'm wondering if there's any other challenges that Repower has run into and what the community can do to help address these challenges. Part of what we realize is that doing things right takes time. It would be great if we could just decarbonize buildings overnight and protect all of these groups that would be vulnerable. But if we did it at the cost of low-income tenants or workers in the construction field, we end up leaving frontline communities out of the picture. Even when it takes longer to uh, center frontline communities, it takes more time and more effort, but it leads to better outcomes and really necessary outcomes. We do this to constantly remind policymakers to do this right and not leave people behind. Solar, uh, it sounds great. It is great. And people thought it would be easy to transition to getting everyone solar energy. But then there was a quick rise in the number of solar companies that wanted to profit by catering to people who are wealthy enough to have their own roof or who are lucky enough to still have one. But then the question was left there, what about the vast majority who don't own their roof? You know, they're renting, they share a roof with a lot of people. That was the idea of rooftop solar. But what did we do in response? We fought for community solar and shared solar because without a program that could help get this energy to frontline communities at the minimum cost, we would never be able to reach the clean energy goals that we've set forth on. Between that and just the challenges of definitely organizing during the pandemic, getting the word out about things like the erasing utility debt. When I mentioned that 66,000 families got $500 checks back in November of 2020, the issue is that there were up to 100,000 families who could have received it. But because of the way that the information was given out, only 66,000 out of 100,000 actually received the benefits. There was actually leftover money which is a huge challenge that only two thirds of the possible funds were distributed because people weren't automatically enrolled in this program. You actually had to apply. You had to put your name out there and say, I want this. You had to prove yourself. That kind of means testing systems. When we were able to win $2 billion in utility debt just last year, which was a huge victory. And this was state relief. So LEDWP ended up receiving a percentage of that $2 billion. We pushed to make sure that there was not means testing, to make sure that there was not some sort of opt-in application process, but that the funds were just distributed to accounts that LEDWP knew were suffering with massive utility debt. 
So we were able to overcome that challenge of applications being complicated. And, you know, what if a place doesn't have, or if a person doesn't have a stable computer or stable internet, document uploads can be very difficult. And a lot of people, when they see that there's an application, will just check out immediately because it's complicated, but it's also unnecessary to run a program like this. So we've seen that the community got involved when it came to doing public comment. We actually had a utility that teach in that had community speakers. Repower LA was helping to run it to make sure that the community and all of these people were heard in the need for more utility debt relief. We were actually pushing for that $2 billion. Those are the kinds of ways that people can get involved. Learning more about Repower LA, we do have social media and are able to respond to concerns when they come, even if it means connecting people with local organizations. We also have RepowerLA.org, which is a great hub to learn about us and contact us and get involved in this. It's fantastic to hear that in the push for the $2 billion through the state, that the default was to pay directly through the bill. Exactly. With the, the later release, people just saw the credit on their account. And it really pushed us because we keep saying this, but it's still not enough. It's always good to have these kinds of things. But I think as a society, there's a lot of questions being arisen about why am I paying into this? Why do I need to it feels like a punishment, especially when you bring shutoffs into the question, which is another thing that we've struggled to end. And there was a long moratorium when the government was clearly aware that there would be huge ramifications if they didn't put a stop to shutoffs. But then it was decided that shutoffs, the protections against shutoffs would be taken down. So that's another thing that we are building power toward changing the idea that we need to keep the lights on and the water flowing that communities don't deserve to wake up to no lights or to have their water cut off when they're in the middle of a bath or any of these kinds of things. We really want to stress the fact that it is a conscious decision to turn someone's water power off and that it's not a, a morally correct decision. Those are the kinds of things that we're pushing forward that I believe frontline communities already know from everything that we've seen. There's a need for that political will that has to be driven by frontline communities advocating. And shifting gears here, you mentioned the two policies that are on city council's desk right now for existing buildings and new buildings for decarbonization. Aside from that, are there any new programs on the horizon for Repower? We are actually looking into basically continuing a lot of the work that's been done pushing to strengthen the things we've already won and, and push for more wins. The building decarbonization struggle is continuing as we get these things through city council and implemented. CMO or the Climate Emergency Mobilization Office has been running workshops across 2022 to get community input towards some important programs. And our participation in that has helped to shape the narrative. But we are also looking forward to the actual implementation of a lot of these things, which can take some time. We're still dedicated to utility debt as well, believing that that's one of the most important issues ever since the start of the pandemic, because there have been these barriers to the basic needs and 
even before the pandemic, there were people struggling and getting their water and power shut off. So we're working hard with our community partners and to get utility debt erased and to win water and energy as a true human right. And we want to focus on these concepts, no more shutoffs, water and power with guaranteed rights, more democracy and transparency at LEDWP while we fight for the expansion of the UPCT program and as many sorts of affordability programs as possible, things that can get people clean energy and just lower the costs as much as possible. If you had to characterize what the program looks like in five years, what would that look like to you? We want to be very far along in that process of building decarbonization. We want to be at the point where new buildings, it's just known that they're going to be built in a much more sustainable way, clean energy, not polluting. And we want our communities to be as resilient as possible in the next five years. At the same time, we know that there are some trends. Extreme weather is on the rise and that's very serious. People's energy consumption increases. We don't know exactly which challenges will pop up, um, but we're we're very confident that working with our community partners, we can keep a pulse on what communities need. We also, of course, acknowledge that there is a huge unhoused population in Los Angeles, which will also need these same rights as we achieve housing as a human right too. So there's all of these different things. We would, of course, love to see a city and even a nation where utility debt is a thing of the past, where shutoffs are a thing of the past, and every person has that right to live in a dignified place, to not have to deal with these kinds of things, and that we can make everything from transportation to houses to just the way that we work and live more sustainable, cleaner without leaving communities behind. So Repower is definitely looking forward to the challenge of continuing to unite the environmental movement and frontline communities and labor toward our shared goals over the next five years. How do you think Lane can partner with organizations like SoCalRen to advance these goals? We're definitely happy to have meetings and have listening sessions to even have presentations when there's big things that are going on. Whether we're receiving those presentations or giving them, we're happy to engage with organizations. We're always looking to expand coalition itself to increase its reach and at the same time support organizations which are fighting for the same things. So there's so many different ways that we can collaborate. There's so much brainstorming that can be done and we really appreciate the work that SoCal Ren has done as well. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cameron. I really appreciate you helping to share that vision from Lane and from Repower LA and as well as your visions. Remember that reducing your energy use today means securing a safer, more affordable and sustainable tomorrow. For more information on energy efficiency opportunities that can help you save energy and money, visit SoCalRen.org or call 877-785-2237.